0: Ladies and gentlemen, when you're doing live television, a lot of things can happen, and sometimes they are not good. So spoke Jim Ross, the play-by-play man for the World Wrestling Federation. He continued, this is not a part of the entertainment here tonight. This is as real as real can be here. There's a rule of thumb when you're watching pro wrestling. If you're seeing it on screen, it's a work part of the show. And at that moment, viewers of the WWF's over-the-edge pay-per-view weren't seeing much of anything. After running a video package hyping the next match, which was to feature a masked wrestler called the Blue Blazer, the telecast cut to a wide shot of the crowd. Most of the fans in attendance were standing still, and the ordinarily raucous crowd had hushed to a murmur. Ross stammered his way through some kind of an explanation. The blue blazer was portrayed by Owen Hart, a veteran performer who hailed from a legendary family of wrestlers. Hart was to make a superhero-like entrance and something, JR didn't know exactly what, had gone wrong. He assured viewers that Owen was receiving medical attention in the ring, and still the WWF's cameras were showing nothing but the uncharacteristically subdued audience. It seemed clear that fans were witnessing a shoot, the wrestling term for when reality intrudes upon the scripted entertainment. After almost 10 minutes, paramedics had loaded Owen onto a stretcher and removed him from the ring. The show went on. Later on, between matches, the camera cut once again to a stone-faced announce team. Jim Ross, quote, Here in Kansas City, tragedy befell the World Wrestling Federation and all of us. Owen Hart was set to make an entrance from the ceiling, and he fell from the ceiling. And I have the unfortunate responsibility to let everyone know that Owen Hart has died. Welcome to Fatal Errors, the podcast about man-made disasters. The position of this show is that many of what we call accidents are rarely accidental. Rather, they're the inevitable result of short-sighted decisions, incompetence, or greed, and sometimes all three. Nowhere has that premise been put to the test as in the subject of today's episode, the death of professional wrestler Owen Hart. Here was a world-famous performer working for one of the biggest entertainment companies in the world. He appeared on TV every week before an audience of millions. His employer, the World Wrestling Federation, staged several live shows a week for audiences of thousands, which included pyrotechnics, lighting and sound effects, and intricate stagecraft. Pro Wrestling shared elements with Hollywood, with live sports, and with traveling circuses, but you would be hard pressed to find another enterprise that routinely matched the WWF's blend of spectacle and craftsmanship. They were the best at what they did. And yet, On May 23, 1999, during a live broadcast, one of their performers died in the ring. How could this have happened? Owen Hart was born May 7, 1965 in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, the youngest of 12 siblings. Wrestling was in his blood. His father, Stu Hart, had made his bones as a decorated amateur wrestler before embarking upon a career in professional wrestling. In 1948, Stu established Stampede Wrestling, which quickly became Calgary's premier wrestling promotion, and in 1952 became the area's official territorial affiliation with the National Wrestling Alliance. Stu's lasting fame would be as a world-renowned professional wrestling trainer. From the dingy, low-ceilinged basement in the Hart home, Stu trained an endless parade of wannabe grapplers. Through these run-down training grounds passed some of history's most revered in-ring performers, including future world champions Chris Jericho, Chris Benoit, and Owen's older brother Brett. Not for nothing was Stu's basement nicknamed the Dungeon. Stu was notorious for stretching trainees, applying brutal submission holds that drove some of them to the brink of unconsciousness. It was part training method and part hazing ritual. A scene from the documentary film Hitman Heart Wrestling with Shadows shows an elderly stew applying a hold to one fresh-faced student while others look on with a mixture of awe and pity. I don't feel my arm, sir, gasps the unlucky pupil. As a child, Owen was terrified of the agonized sounds emanating from the dungeon. He once tape-recorded them as though to prove they were real and not figments of his imagination. Although Owen's older siblings all entered the family business, and although he showed uncommon athletic ability from a young age, Owen had no desire to grow up to be a professional wrestler. He wanted to be a teacher. One Friday in the spring of 1982, at the age of 16, Owen was working the soundboard at a Stampede wrestling show. His job was to play the entrance music for each wrestler. During an intermission, a female audience member a couple years younger than Owen waved him down. He was about to embark upon the romantic adventure of his life, and Owen's first words to the girl were, Did you want something? He did not have game. The girl was Martha Patterson, a sophomore from a rival high school. She had seen him weeks earlier after an amateur wrestling competition at school and thought he was cute. Although Martha had reluctantly accompanied a friend to the Stampede show that night, she was surprised to recognize Owen and went over to talk to him. Their first conversation was brief. Then, at the local pizza shop after the show, they ran into each other again. Despite her disdain for the product, Martha continued to go to wrestling shows to see Owen. And the two would meet up again at the pizza place afterward. Things went on like this for a few months until Martha laid down an ultimatum. If Owen wanted to see her again, it would have to be away from Stampede Wrestling. She had no desire to see another show. Owen waited a few weeks to call, but finally he and Martha made a real date some six months after they'd first met. From that point on, they were inseparable. Both Owen and Martha were the youngest of enormous families, and both had a desire to break free of sometimes strained family dynamics. They found in each other the sense of stability that both had lacked growing up. To be apart was hard. When Owen spent the summer of 1983 backpacking around Europe, He sent several postcards a week to Martha, and they talked on the phone weekly. It was true love. At around the same time, the wrestling business in North America was undergoing a seismic shift. Under the old territory system, promoters each controlled a geographical area with its own stars, storylines, and championships. A given territory would have a stable of talent, and wrestlers often toured between territories, Big stars could be billed as special attractions to juice attendants, or limited workers could be cycled out of town before their acts grew stale. Under the auspices of the National Wrestling Alliance, promoters stayed out of each other's territories, foregoing national exposure for strangleholds on the local market. But in the early 1980s, a Northeastern promoter named Vince McMahon had other ideas. He had designs on national dominance for his fledgling World Wrestling Federation. McMahon raided talent from all over the territories, in particular a blond-haired heavyweight named Hulk Hogan, who was to be the centerpiece of McMahon's venture. In 1984, McMahon bought out Stu Hart's Stampede Wrestling. Owen's older brother Brett went off to work for Vince in the WWF, along with much of the rest of the Stampede roster. Owen remained behind to enroll in the University of Calgary, where he would pursue a degree in physical education. Owen attended U C on a wrestling scholarship, amateur wrestling, which was a legitimate or shoot competition. To maintain his scholarship demanded long hours and fierce dedication to the wrestling team. Owen would grapple with the same ambivalence toward amateur wrestling as he would later feel toward professional wrestling. He had goals outside of wrestling, but wrestling would seem to present the surest path toward those goals. It was almost a paradox. As Owen would later say of his scholarship, "...it took precedent over the whole purpose why I was going to university, to get a degree. It's like I'm back in this wrestling, the curse of wrestling." In 1985, the Hearts reopened Stampede Wrestling, but with their best talent long gone to the greener pastures of the WWF, they struggled to maintain an audience. They appealed to Owen to come perform for them, and after the academic year ended in 1986, he took them up on it. Overnight Owen became Stampede's biggest star. He showcased a crowd-pleasing, high-flying style that drew fans in droves. Owen's so-called summer job had him making more money than he ever had before. When it came time to enroll for the fall semester, Owen decided to skip it. He planned to take the year off of school earn some money, and return later to finish his degree. But Owen was a victim of his own success. His work in Canada drew international interest, and in the summer of 1987, he signed a deal to tour Japan with New Japan Pro Wrestling. Performers in Japan tended to be smaller and more agile than their Western counterparts, and the in-ring work was faster paced and harder hitting. The Japanese puro style suited Owen well. On May 27, 1988, he became the first Westerner to win the prestigious IWGP Junior Heavyweight Championship, an honor that has been bestowed upon some of the greatest professional wrestlers in history. Despite the lucrative pay and the professional accolades, working Japan was a grind. Owen would be apart from his fiance Martha for six weeks at a time, alone in a strange land with insurmountable language and cultural barriers. Working the puro resu style night in and night out was also taxing on the body, Owen frequently returned to Calgary, spent both physically and mentally. The WWF made a few overtures to Owen during this time, and by the summer of 1988 he was unable to resist the allure of a fat paycheck and the opportunity to stay in the Western Hemisphere. To his dismay, the company packaged him as the Blue Blazer, putting a mask and a blue cape on him and using him as a jobber, somebody whose role is to lose over and over to make the other wrestlers look good. Less than a year into his first tenure with the WWF, Owen quit. After seven years together, Owen and Martha finally tied the knot on July 1st, 1989. The happiness of the day was overshadowed, however, by Hart family squabbles. Stu and Helen insisted on hosting the wedding at the Hart home, and family members volunteered to provide the food and wedding cake. In the weeks leading up to the ceremony, it all fell apart. Owen had asked his brother Bruce to be the best man, but then Bruce had his jaw broken in a fistfight. Owen's sister Georgia backed out of making the cake at the last minute. Various arguments broke out, leading to some of Owen's siblings not attending, and others leaving early. And of course the food ran out. It was a debacle. Nevertheless, for the happy couple, the wedding day was the culmination of years of shared dreams. They had been diligently squirreling away money and having a house built that would be ready for the start of their married life together. At just 24 and 22 years old respectively, Owen and Martha were newlyweds and homeowners ready to face the future together. When Martha became pregnant with the couple's first child in 1991, Owen decided it was time to get out of the wrestling game and pursue a more stable career. His brother Keith was a Calgary firefighter, and that sounded to Owen like a fine way to make a living. He threw himself into qualifying for the position, getting certified in first aid and CPR. He applied to the Calgary Fire Department repeatedly, but lacking a college degree was never able to progress in the hiring process. From Martha Hart's memoir, quote, Disappointed at being overlooked on three separate occasions, Owen wanted so badly to escape the wrestling world that he typed a two-page letter to Calgary Fire Chief Wayne Morris. "'I am not bitter or jealous of the successful applicants,' he wrote in the letter dated August 31st, 1991. "'I do envy them and hope one day I can get a chance to write the exam to prove myself and be judged on my test results.' Although I am discouraged, I am hopeful you can inform me of what other requirements I should obtain in my quest to be a firefighter. He signed the letter, discouraged applicant. He never heard back from the fire chief and never applied again." End quote. With a baby on the way, Owen had no choice but to take bookings. He worked in Germany and Mexico, and had a brief stint in an upstart promotion in Atlanta called World Championship Wrestling, which was owned by Ted Turner. WCW offered Owen a full time job, which he rejected when it turned out that he'd be required to move to Atlanta. Finally, in late 1991, through his brother Brett as an intermediary, Owen received a second aggressive job offer from the World Wrestling Federation. This time he took it. The curse of wrestling wasn't done with Owen Hart. When Owen arrived to the World Wrestling Federation at the beginning of 1992, he found a company in transition. The Hulkamania boom of the late 1980s had crested, and Vince's attempts to replace Hogan with other muscle-bound studs weren't taking. Characters like The Ultimate Warrior and Lex Luger looked the part, but were limited in the ring and unreliable outside of it. Worse for Vince, in 1993, federal prosecutors charged him and his company with conspiracy to distribute steroids to his wrestlers. Vince would successfully fight the charges in court, but the imbroglio led to a long period in which he had to turn over day-to-day control of the business to his wife, Linda. Still, some of the newer performers found opportunity in the crisis. Owen's brother Brett, who had been a successful mid-card performer since coming over from Stampede Wrestling, winning tag titles and the company's Secondary Intercontinental Championship, at this time ascended to main event status and began challenging for the World Heavyweight Championship. Another breakout star was Shawn Michaels, who was much smaller than the behemoths of the 1980s, but whose incandescent in-ring performances and outsized, arrogant personality presaged an edgier direction for the product. But for all Owen's ability, management wasn't quite sure what to do with him. First they paired him with Brett's old tag team partner, Jim Neidhart, as the new foundation, and then with Coco Beware as high energy. Within a year, both teams had dissolved. Owen was foundering creatively, and he desperately missed being home with his family. Owen and Martha's first child, Oge, was born on March 5, 1992. Owen hated life on the road with a baby at home. He became a guru of flight scheduling, dashing home to Calgary whenever possible, even for short visits, before jetting off to a new city to work WWF shows. In 1993, he attempted once again to find employment outside of wrestling, this time applying to be a customs officer. As with his attempt to become a Calgary firefighter, Owen never got a response. Next, Owen was packaged as a singles wrestler nicknamed The Rocket, which would lead to the first creative triumph of his WWF career, as he turned heel against his virtuous big brother Brett. On March 20th, 1994, Owen and Brett opened Wrestlemania 10 with a critically acclaimed one-on-one match that is still included in best of lists today. Owen plays the bad guy little brother role perfectly, provoking his reluctant older brother and then hiding behind the ref, taking cheap shots, and generally making everyone in Madison Square Garden that night want to whack him upside the head. In a major upset, Owen ended up pinning Brett for the biggest victory of his career. When Owen won the annual King of the Ring tournament that June, he began to call himself the King of Hearts, and remained a thorn in Bret's side. The feud culminated at that year's Summerslam, when the siblings faced off in a steel cage match for the WWF Championship. It's more of a brawl than their clinic at WrestleMania 10, but no less fun to watch, particularly with Owen busting out more of the high-flying moves he'd honed in Japan and Mexico. This time, Brett triumphed, and despite a few more run-ins, the feud would eventually conclude without Owen ever getting the upper hand. On September 23, 1995, Owen and Martha's second child, a girl named Athena, was born. Owen was thrilled that his family had grown, but the same old issues arose. He had to get back on the road right away, back to a wrestling business that he was growing more and more disenchanted with. Owen, like his brother Brett, was unhappy with the direction that WWF programming was heading. Facing stiff competition from WCW, which was signing as many wrestlers as it could to ludicrously favorable contracts, the WWF was hemorrhaging viewers and desperate to staunch the bleeding. Their strategy was to move in a so-called edgier direction. They amped up the violence, the TNA, the language. The fanbase, a slightly older, more cynical cohort than had cheered Hulk Hogan for telling them to take their vitamins and drink their milk, began to cheer for the bad guys. Nowhere was this more apparent than in the crowd's embrace of Stone Cold Steve Austin, a beer-swilling, bird-flipping redneck who delighted in physically brutalizing his opponents. Owen didn't understand it at all. In 1997, Owen won the Intercontinental Championship for the first time and was to defend it at Summerslam against Austin where he would inadvertently alter the creative direction of the entire WWF. The match itself is great. Both Owen and Austin are excellent workers, and the contest is hard-hitting and athletic. But it ends anticlimactically. After Owen hits a tombstone pile driver on Austin, Austin barely moves. Owen plays to the crowd, stalling for time, and eventually Austin, the scripted winner grabs Owen for an incredibly weak-looking roll-up in the pin. It doesn't look right at all, and the reason it doesn't look right is because Owen botched the move. In a tombstone pile driver, one wrestler holds the other one vertically with his head pointed down, then drops down to his knees, simulating that he is pile driving the opponent's head and neck into the canvas. Done right, the move is perfectly safe, and the second wrestler's head never even touches the mat. Done wrong, it can break someone's neck. And that's what happened to Stone Cold Steve Austin. Owen was already playing a heel at this point, but the legitimate injury to Austin gave him nuclear heat among the Stone Cold partisans in the crowd. Owen would thus play a key role in one of the two pivotal storylines that were about to reverse the WWF's declining fortunes. During the September 22, 1997 episode of Raw is War, Owen was cutting a promo in the ring when Austin returned and ran him off. Then Vince McMahon entered the ring. At that point, the on-screen Vince McMahon was nothing more than a television commentator. But in the era of the smart fan, everyone knew that Vince was the owner of the WWF and that he ran the show. So when McMahon lectured Austin on-screen that he needed to work within the system and recover fully from his neck injury before he could come back to work, everyone watching understood that they were seeing the boss tell his employee what was what. Austin seemed to consider what Vince was telling him and agreed to work within the system. And then it happened. Austin hit McMahon with his finishing move, the Stone Cold Stunner. The place exploded. Two months later, Owen would be adjacent to the other massive shock to the WWF order. At the Survivor Series pay-per-view in Montreal, Owen once again lost the Intercontinental title to Steve Austin. Later that night, the world champion Bret Hart would face Shawn Michaels. Everyone knew that it was Bret's last big show with the WWF, that he had signed a contract with WCW and would be leaving within days. As is chronicled in detail in numerous articles and documentaries, Vince was so paranoid that Brett might abscond with the championship belt that he hatched a plan. Brett thought the match would end in a disqualification, meaning that he wouldn't drop the belt that night. But when Michaels put Brett in a submission hold, Vince ordered the bell rung and awarded the championship to Michaels. It became known as the Montreal Screwjob and it solidified the on-screen character of the evil Mr. McMahon. In support of his brother, a disgusted Owen asked to be released from his contract. Instead, he got a raise. Vince increased Owen's compensation to $400,000 a year plus $50,000 in merchandising rights and backdated it to the beginning of the contract year. Owen could accept the payday or sit out the remainder of his contract. While it was good money, he was hardly set for life. Like all of the wrestlers, Owen was classified as an independent contractor and not an employee of the WWF. That meant the company did not provide health insurance, retirement benefits, or disability pay. All that had to come out of Owen's pocket. Owen had once suffered a knee injury that had kept him out of action for months. Mits McMahon had paid him a stipend of a few hundred dollars a week which, while more than McMahon was contractually obligated to provide, amounted to a pittance. Owen also had to pay taxes in both the U.S. and Canada, and as a touring performer would have been subject to the so-called jock tax, a tax liability in most of the states in which he wrestled. And in the high-risk world of professional wrestling, he knew his earning potential could be devastated at any time by a freak injury or by the whims of promoters. Owen had to take the deal. Was it even a choice? Vince McMahon was the bright star at the center of the wrestling universe. It was impossible to escape his gravitational pull. Owen didn't suffer creatively from his attempt to quit, not at first, anyway. As ratings began to rise, fueled by the feud between Stone Cold Steve Austin and Mr. McMahon, Owen won the Secondary European Championship and joined the Black Power faction, Nation of Domination, in which he was known as the Black Heart. Owen next formed a successful tag team with Jeff Jarrett, winning the tag team titles in the winter of 1999 and defending them at WrestleMania 15. Around this time, Owen began to appear once again as the Blue Blazer. In a callback to the heyday of Hulkamania, the Blue Blazer always reminded the kids watching to take their vitamins, say their prayers, and drink their milk. Except in 1999, this didn't make him a good guy. This blue blazer was an annoying, holier-than-thou superhero who tut-tutted the excesses of the Attitude Era and drew boos wherever he went. Owen didn't mind. The fact was that he was uncomfortable with the staples of Attitude Era programming and he didn't mind saying so. As the blue blazer he may have been a heel but at least he didn't have to go on TV and lie to people. And he was getting to go on TV, a lot. The Blue Blazer earned an intercontinental title shot against The Godfather, whose gimmick was that he was a pimp and was accompanied to the ring by a procession of scantily clad young women called the Ho-Train. The Godfather was a crowd favorite. The match was to happen at WWF's May 1999 pay-per-view called Over the Edge. A few days before the show, Owen was informed that he would make a spectacular entrance for his match. He'd be lowered from the rafters of Kansas City's Kemper Arena, flapping his arms like a chicken, looking every bit the deluded wannabe superhero. At ring level, Owen would get caught up in his cape, pull a quick-release strap, and drop onto his face. Owen didn't want to do it. He was terrified of heights. One of the odd things about professional wrestling is how many different skills its practitioners are supposed to have. Wrestlers are called upon to recite lines and perform in skits, but they aren't really actors. They're often sensational athletes who use their talents in service of a pre-planned faux competition. And they do various stunts, but they aren't trained stuntmen. They're always at the mercy of whatever the show calls for. On an episode of the Talk is Jericho podcast, the wrestler Sammy Zayn explained how this works in practice. At the October 2017 pay-per-view, Wrestler Kevin Owens faced Vince's son Shane McMahon in a Hell in a Cell match, in which a gigantic roofed cage is placed over and around the ring. In a planned spot, Owens was to be lying motionless on a gimmicked announce table on the outside of the cell. Shane would jump from the top about 20 feet above, as though to deliver an elbow drop. At the last moment, Zayn would emerge from the crowd and pull Owens off the table just before Shane landed on him. Zayn to Jericho, quote, To me, this is an elite Hollywood-level stunt, and they're just kind of like, "Uh, you just got to pull him off. I have 1.8 seconds to make sure that I go from invisible to grabbing him, and he's lifeless. You don't understand the margin of error for this. Dude, I had knots in my stomach all day. Zane went on. It's a crazy spot, it's a crazy stunt, and if this was Hollywood and we were doing it for a movie, it would be rehearsed ad nauseum, you would have professionals, there would be a giant crash pad, and for us, it was just like, oh, when you see his foot kinda go, lives are on the line here, end quote. That was the position Owen found himself in on May 23, 1999. He could perform the stunt with minimal preparation, or he could effectively lose his job. As it happened so many times in his life, the curse of wrestling was inescapable. A rigger named Bobby Talbert, who had worked with WCW's Sting on similar stunts in the past, was hired to help Owen with his entrance. Talbert had already done two test runs of the rig, first with a 250-pound sandbag and the second with an assistant. Next, he wanted to run through it with Owen. Owen tried his best to avoid a practice run, but a few hours before showtime, Talbert successfully lowered Owen to the ring. There was just one problem. Owen forgot to pull the release cord upon landing, but he opted against running through it again. Shortly after the broadcast began, Owen made his way to the catwalks above the arena. He wore his ring gear under a pair of coveralls and carried his mask and cape in a shoulder bag. The rickety catwalks were tough to navigate under ideal conditions, with snaking cables and support beams obstructing the pathway. For a 220-pound man lugging wrestling equipment in the dark, it was even harder. Talbert and two local riggers were waiting for Owen in a spot above one corner of the ring, near the massive scoreboard that hung in the center of the camper arena. They strapped Owen into his harness, which looped around his chest several times, and then helped him into his cape. Talbert checked the integrity of the buckle that would bear all of Owen's weight, tugging at it repeatedly. It held. The last thing Talbert did was rig the strap for the quick-release mechanism to Owen's chest using gaff tape. One final time, he told Owen not to touch the strap, and he'd be fine. At last, Owen climbed over the railing to prepare for his descent. On the video screen was playing a video package about the Blue Blazers storyline. The end of the video would be Owen's cue to descend. With his blue blazer mask on, Owen surely had trouble breathing as he dangled 78 feet above the ring. All of his weight was borne by the straps on his chest, and the weight of his cape pulled against his neck. One can only imagine how the white noise of the crowd blended into the rushing in his ears. Trying to get comfortable, Owen wriggled in the harness and flared his arms out. It was at that moment that Owen and the riggers heard the snap of his buckle's release. To be continued. Fatal Errors is researched, written, and narrated by me, Mitch Kerpata, and contains original music by Dylan Lane. Join us again in two weeks for part two of the Owen Hart story. Until then, stay safe.